You're listening to Drek FM. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. I didn't think it would end this way. End? No, the journey doesn't end here. Death is just another path. One that we all must take. The grey rain curtain of this world rolls back and all turns to silver glass. And then you see it. See what? White shores. And beyond. The far green country. And a swift sunrise. Well, that isn't so bad. Welcome, everyone, to Trek FM's dedicated General Geek Show here in the Green Dragon this week. So excited to be here. Tankards of ale are flowing like wine, and uh, goodness, it, it's a great time for a party. We're going to be wrapping up the Lord of the Rings series tonight, and I'm excited because uh, that means we'll have done the Hobbit films and the Lord of the Rings films, and of course, we celebrated 15 years of Fellowship of the Ring this year, and so... To do that, needed somebody who had been through all the Hobbit films, and, well, she's been here for some of our Lord of the Rings movies, and I'm so excited to have back in The Green Dragon, the one, the only, the indomitable, Meg Calcutt. Hey, I'm back. I'm really running the Woo-hoo! gamut of uh, Lord of the Rings here. That's right, that's right. Well, I'm just, uh, it's so much fun to be doing this series, you know, uh, this is, um, I think this was really formative for me uh, as as just a series. You know, I, I grew up with the book and then seeing it on film, it was like it was the kind of the first time that something really big came on screen that had been a book that I really loved like this, you know, that had been a part of my childhood, you know, in the same way that all the kids who watched Harry Potter for them, you know, that was a part of their childhood. And then they saw Harry Potter, you know, for me, this was that thing that became an actual movie. So it's, it's been pretty excited to talk through here. And for the most part on the rewatch, I have to say that I think the movies, you know, they still love up really well. And, and that's a really important thing too. So before we really dive in, because we have so much to talk about here with Return of the King, you can find us all over the place online. There, Trek FM uh, is on iTunes at iTunes.com slash Trek FM. We're a feature provider. You can find all of the shows. And of course, um, when you see the uh, 602 Club there in iTunes, just give us a star rating review. Uh, that really helps out. And I really appreciate a bunch of people recently giving us new star ratings and reviews, uh, please continue to do so, and I'll continue to give you shouts out on the show for doing that, helping us grow. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at TrekFM, Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. You can also find us on the Babel Conference, the listeners-only discussion group there on Facebook. Uh, just type Babel into that search field, or 
If you're on our website at trek.fm, just click discussion on the menu bar. You can email us. I've gotten a bunch of those recently. It's been a lot of fun to converse with people that way. You can find us over at trek.fm slash contact. Choose a show. Choose a 602 Club. That'll come straight to me and anybody else who was on the show with me that week. And you can find us, last but not least, speakpipe.com slash trek.fm. And that allows you to leave a voicemail. And I love getting voicemails. What has two thumbs and wants voicemails for Christmas? This guy. That guy. Well, Megan, we're back here, and we're at Return of the King. But very interestingly, this movie starts off not in a way that I expected, because we actually start with a story that takes place before Return of the King, before The Two Towers, before Fellowship of the Ring, takes place before The Hobbit, even. And that is the story of Smeagol, and how he came upon the ring and what led him to be the way that he is as Gollum. So I wanted to ask you, starting off the movie this way, do you do you like it? Does it work for you? What do you think about this as the beginning of the end? Uh, it semi-works for me. I do think it's an awkward way to start this movie. Um, I mean, it's the only time I think, I think... Um, that we get Smeagol's story in such depth in the movies. Um, it's spoken of, but we don't actually get to see it happen. And, you know, when you read Fellowship of the Ring, you get this whole detailed story from Gandalf during the Council of Elrond. So it is important, but at the same time, I don't know how necessary it is for the movie. And it is, it's, it's awkwardly placed and I really don't know where else you could put it to make it less awkwardly placed. I feel like Peter Jackson just really wanted to do it, so he did. To me, it almost feels like, oh, we love Andy Serkis yeah. as Gollum. We want Andy Serkis to be able to play a character that's not computer animated. They just they wanted to be able to find a way to, for him to get to play Smeagol without all of the makeup and then, of course, without all of the CGI. And then they get to do impressive CGI of Smeagol becoming Gollum. Yes, yes. Makeup work and then CGI work. Yes, very much so. But I'm right there with you that it does seem a little bit awkward. I've honestly really never loved this beginning to this film. It feels a little self-indulgent. And I can understand thematically that they probably want you to be able to connect with the fact of who this character was beforehand and where he's going to go, obviously, at the end of the movie, which, spoiler alert, we all know, he takes the ring from Frodo and falls into uh, the uh, fires of Mount Doom, and it's all over. Uh, So he does have his part to play. But I just feel like this is... I didn't need it. Um, You know, if if I was going to put this anywhere... It would actually be, and I think it would actually fit better, I almost feel like Jackson should recut this, but he should put this at that place in Moria where Gandalf tells the tale. Yeah! And so just cut this into that scene so you're seeing it play out as Gandalf is telling the story. That would make more sense. It makes much more sense. 
uh, especially narratively. And uh, so maybe a special edition needs to come out then. So, but I, I think that's the place where this story seems to fit better because, I, again, by the end of Return of the, here with Return of the King, there's so much else to cover in this movie. And I, I just, you, you know, the, the six and a half to seven minutes that we get Smeagol's backstory, which we have already heard before, isn't necessarily the most important place to start, especially with. I mean, because the very next thing, and this part got cut a little bit from the movie, and and it's in the extended version, but it's Sauron's end, how he comes to an end, like wrapping up what happened with the Two Towers film and and kind of moving the story forward. And, of course, it's very different than it was in the book, too, because we're not going to give him the same end that he got in the book because there's no scourging of the Shire. It, it's so disappointing that we don't get to do the scourging of the Shire in the movies. But at the same time, the way that Peter Jackson structured his narrative is is actually so different from Tolkien's narrative that I really don't know how he could have included that in the story and had it work. At least not the way he structured his version of the story. So in terms of how he handled... Saruman's end I actually think it's really satisfying and I think it's well done it's one of my favorite little sections of this movie because the way I love uh, Merry and Pippin and all of the stuff with them and then I just love the way he comes to an end no I think I think you're right the the way that the movie is structured the way that the movies are done I think this is very satisfying. I, I was always actually surprised that this wasn't in the theatrical cut because it's not really that much longer of a scene. Yeah. And again, it seems very satisfying for anybody who's just watching the movies to kind of know what this guy's end is. And it was such a big deal in, in the first two movies. So seeing how that plays out. And it is nice that they do reference what happened in the books with the Scourging of the Shire because he is stabbed in the back mm-hmm. by Wormtongue. Yeah. So th- he dies the same way, just in a different place. And so, um, and they do have a conversation with Saruman when they go to Isengard about everything. And yeah. so uh, I, I think it plays out similarly, but it's also different. But I, I think you're right, it does work. I, I will say, watching with the, the, the insert scene that they have here uh, that's even longer with Merry and Pippin, it's not good backdrop work. <laughs> it's really bad. It looks like they're on a stage. You are uh, right about that, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't happen much in this this film uh, or this film series, which it, it becomes very difficult to to see when they're on stage and when they're not because they were so good with building the forests and everything and making everything seem so realistic for the most part. But this is one of those places where you're like, Nope, that's just on a soundstage, and they were, like, killing time one day, and they're like, we can shoot this scene. So, uh, (laughs) but it is very, it's very funny, and I think it's a satisfying scene because uh, it happens in the book, and it's a funny scene there as well because Gimli says pretty much the same thing. You know, here we find you feasting and smoking, you know. So, um, yeah, that's, that's really nice. But this is also, too, where... There's a huge difference because, you know, as we're moving through the film, 
uh, characters and things don't happen quite the same way. The movie continues to do things where it simplifies it all. And, uh, you know, instead of having a journey back from Isengard to, to Edoras and only maybe staying there one night, they have everybody meet there in, in the movie. And I, I enjoy that scene as well because uh, you get the drinking game <laughs> yeah. between. And that's, it's really silly. But I think it was smart to add some humor to the beginning of this movie because it is going to get very heavy. There's going to be a point to which the action doesn't stop for a good, like, two hours. Yeah, it feels like there's just hours of of fighting happening. So I, I agree with you. Having that little moment is really nice. And I'm a big fan of anything that plays up the relationship between Gimli and Legolas because it's one of my favorite parts of the story and I'm, I'm I'm actually reading through the books now and I just love them together so getting to see it on screen any chance I get I just am excited about and that's one thing too that um, I, I do miss here in the movie especially this one because Gimli and Legolas have they make a pact that if Legolas will go tour the caves of Helm's Deep, which are renowned for their beauty and their just in, their incredible uh, gem nature. I mean, they've got tons of incredible things to see, especially for dwarf. And I love the way Gimli describes it. It's just phenomenal. Yes. It really is. It, it's, it's a beautiful passage. And so he makes that deal with Legolas. You go there and I'll go to Fangorn. And that plays out a little bit at the end of Return of the King in the book. And it's something they talk about more as well. And I kind of wish that they had brought that up in the movie a little bit more. Yeah. Just because it adds to their friendship. You know, this unlikely duo is one of the hallmarks, I think, of, of, of Tolkien's story here. Which is, it's important that people that are different do come together yeah and that's one of the cool things about the storyline yeah and the the fact that they are such good friends it makes sense when you're reading it and watching it because their personalities just kind of fit together so great and everyone who discovers that they're friends is always kind of surprised that a dwarf and an elf are friends but it makes so much sense and i i just i love it i love it it's like one of my favorites and you know what's kind of neat is that, you know, after the seeing the Hobbit series and reading the Hobbit, it's uh, it's interesting because you know that if you know the, the Tolkien lore, he's Thranduil's son mm -hmm. and he has experience dealing with dwarves. They grew, I mean, you know, those dwarves him. move back into Erebor. He has a lot of experience. So, uh, you know, I think... Uh, for some of the prejudices they both have against their respective races. They've actually also been set up to be somebody who could find a way to get along. So it's very interesting that both of their families are from the same respective area of the, the country now, you yeah. know? <laughs> they live next door. They're next door neighbors. Do you uh, Maybe, maybe uh, you know, Legolas had to go for a cup of sugar once. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Their paths secretly crossed somewhere. We just don't know where. Yes, yes. Uh, they were both hunting the same <laughs> elk and, you know. It, <laughs> it was all romantic. It was just so romantic. 
Oh, <laughs> 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 uh, well, I don't know because Gimli does enjoy talking about when he's drunk about the uh, going swimming with little hairy women. So, <laughs> yeah, but he also finds Galadriel to be the fairest of of any maiden he's ever seen. So, you know. <laughs> Which is awesome. There is actually a part in the book that when they first meet Eomer, yes. he says something rude about the Lady Galadriel. And so Gimli challenges he's him and says, him. Yeah. yes, whenever you see her, if you don't think she's the most beautiful person in the world... We have to basically throw down. <laughs> and so when they meet back up in Minas Tirith and the book, he s- said, well, I've seen Galadriel, but I just have to say, after CD- seeing Lady Arwen, it's kind of hard to see who's better looking. And <laughs> they come to an agreement that, okay, well, that's cool. Uh, which it's very funny in the book. Like there's There's just lots of humor like that. And so... I, I wish that um, they had found a way to, to get even more of that I stuff in. I totally agree. You know, one of the things that I, I remember the first time reading The Return of the King and one of the scenes and one of the parts of the book that I found most fascinating was the whole Paths of the Dead. And I just I just thought it was such an interesting idea and it it really delved into uh this idea of really enriching the world of Tolkien and making it feel very old and ancient you know that these people have been like this for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years because they hadn't uh come to the aid another king who cursed them and gave them long life and what did you think about them uh, and the way that they bring that to life? Well, it's, you know, from the books, it's one of the parts that I don't remember the most. So I'm really excited to get there when I do. It's one of the more unique parts of the movie. And it feels different than anything else that happens in the film leading up to it. And I just, I love how creepy it is. I love the avalanche of skulls that comes crashing down after they first meet the dead king. And I love, ultimately, at the end of it, how noble Aragorn is in releasing them from their oath. Because they do... I mean, that's one of the complaints. People always complain, well, why didn't you just keep them around for the end of the movie? Because then they could have just gone straight into Mordor. But that's not what they had pledged to do. It's one of the more interesting parts of the movie, and I liked to see... um, Gimli always makes me laugh in this scene, the way he's blowing away all of the different spirits. (laughs) So, you know, again, Gimli being funny, I'm just glad to see it. One of the things that I miss uh, about this scene is... So, in the movie, uh, before they head to the Paths of the Dead, in the the book, they actually reach Dunhow before the king. Mm-hmm. Theoden, and they're met up with by the Dunedain. The rest of the Dunedain oh, join Aragorn there, and they walk the paths of the dead with them, which I always thought was really cool because it added so much to Aragorn's character. I thought in the book that the, the men who had followed him, they come. And I understand in the movie that they bring Elrond and they you know they use him to bring the sword to to 
Aragorn so that he'll finally take up his mantle and become king. Yeah. I was always a little frustrated with that in the movies that they make him such like, oh, I don't really want to be king, you know, because in the books, he's just waiting for his time to come. It's yeah. not like I don't want to be king, uh, you know, uh, and it's not like the Lion King where I, oh, I just can't wait to be king. It's just <laughs> it's I'm just waiting for the right time to become king. And there's that nobility there. But I, I kind of wish that. The Dunedain would have maybe shown up at Helm's Deep in the second movie instead of the elves. Yeah, so I So that agree. would have made a little bit more sense. And then they could have stayed around with him. Because I think, you know, if you're going to draw something in uh, and just kind of move around where they come into the picture, I think that would have been really cool. Well, and it would have given us a taste of, I mean, a... a, a just a whole other side of the universe that we don't get to ever see because we all we ever see is Strider. Yeah, you're you're right. We don't really they don't really get into the Dunedain and who they are and why it's kind of so important that Strider is of the Dunedain. And also, you know, going back to the point about they they could have joined in Helm's Deep. I think that would have been a better idea too because it was such an important part of that fight in the book was that it was only the men who fought and won that battle. So, you know, now that I've reread that and having just watched the second movie, having the elves come in the way that they did kind of changes the implications about this becoming the age of men, um, which is one of the things that they keep talking about, you know, throughout all of the series, the books and the movies. But yeah, to have the Dunedain come in would have been awesome. Well, and, and that's the that's the whole thing, too, because, you know, when we get to, you know, Minas Tirith, that's a big part as well, that Rohan comes to the aid of Gondor. And again, it's the age of men. And, and the rest of the peoples of Middle-earth are, they're not there at those battles. Um, mm-hmm. If you read in Tolkien's other writings, the dwarves and the elves of Mirkwood and the Lonely Mountain are very much in their own battle with the forces of Sauron to the north, and so they're holding them at bay, so they're busy. But yes, the, the story that we're focusing on is the way in which the men of nobility are finally coming to the forefront. You know, we're, we're getting rid of all of these lackluster gentlemen, <laughs> you know. Uh, we're getting rid of the Denethors, you know, Boromir has died. Uh, we, we've gotten rid of somebody like... Um, a worm tongue from influencing, uh, you know, uh, the the Rohan. And, you know, we raised up Eomer to a, a place where he should be in that, uh, sit, that culture as well. So all of those things are happening. And, and you're right. That is a theme that doesn't really get played out in the movie. Yeah. And the realms but of men are coming together, which is what's really important. That's what we, we, we see. That's what we see happen ultimately by the end of this movie. Well, and it's interesting because it's even the paths of the dead where it's men who had abdicated their role and their oath beforehand coming to finally fulfill that destiny and bring it forward. I think that's that's a really interesting thing. Yeah, and be the true men that they should have been from the beginning. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And and I think that that's a a subtle way of, of saying that, you know, manhood is about Bearing the responsibility 
whatever that responsibility is that's thrust upon you uh, and and doing it to the best of your ability, even if maybe you know you might fail. Yeah. You know, that's what makes a true man. And I think that's a really incredible thing to see play out. And again, seeing that in, in the way that the Paths of the Dead happen is very interesting. And I, I, I think, you know, they kind of look Ghostbustery-ish. Uh, as as phantasms, <laughs> they are a little cheesy, but it's okay with me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I don't really know how how do you make that not yeah, cheesy? <laughs> exactly. Well, and I I think at this time, Pirates of the Caribbean had just come out, or or was being worked on, and I think they saw some stuff for that, and they were like, "Oh, son of a," because they realized <laughs> what they were doing was pretty similar. But there was not enough time. There was no way they were going to be able to to go back and change that. So, but I think it works for the most part. Um, you know, I I I I enjoy them for uh, and you know, it it's it's not a bad effect. It still works, you know. And so, uh, it is interesting though. <laughs> the movie takes no account for the books uh, or the the geography <laughs> yeah. of Middle Earth. Into the fact that they stumble out of the dark mountain and are right there at the river. Yeah. Well, the river's like a hundred and some odd miles away. Not right there. <laughs> yeah. No. So they just condensed a bunch of stuff again yeah. uh, and, and made it easier for themselves. But I think for the most part, uh, the Paths of the Dead, it works really well. It is very creepy. The idea uh, that, uh, you know, the entire place falls down and I don't know how they survived the skulls at all. Uh, <laughs> I, I, it seems Magic. like you would just slide right down with them. Yeah. I, I don't know how you keep your feet unless you're elf. Yeah. I, so I don't either, but what, Hey, whatever. <laughs> the effect looks really cool. So I'm, I'm fine with it. No, it does. <laughs> you're right. It does because it's actually real too. They yeah. were just doing all of these dead, well, not dead skulls, but because yeah. they're not real skulls, but <laughs> they're just pouring all these skulls down these chutes at them. Imagine having to be the props department for that, man. Like, if they oh, had to reshoot man. that at any point, what a nightmare. <laughs> it kind of reminds me in The Hobbit where they put them in the barrels and they put the fish on them, and they legitimately <laughs> put them in barrels and slid fish down the same kind of thing. That sounds just like a nightmare. A na- real fish too, just nasty. I mean, I mean, you would have smelled like fish for like weeks. Talk after about that, suffering so. for your craft. <laughs> Ooh, oh man. Um, but I'm still sure that they had fun. Uh, well, this leads us to one of the most audacious places in Middle Earth. One of the biggest set pieces, which is Minas Tirith. And uh, I, I have to say that the city itself, the creation of the bigotry that they used for Minas Tirith and the work that they do to bring it to life, it's phenomenal. It's beautiful, I mean, isn't it? Oh, it's, it really is. It's like on the level for me when I see Hogwarts, I get all misty eyed because it's just such a beautiful piece of work. The same thing happens to me when I see Minas Tirith. It's just... So gorgeous, and what a work of art. I mean, really. Bravo, everybody. That's, you know, it's one of those things that when you see it, you really do get the sense that it feels like a real vibrant place. Yeah. 
And just like they did with Helm's Deep, they built as much of this as they could on the these this gravel site, uh, this quarry, where they could build different levels and then they could film for real outside. And it, it gives this sense of reality to what they're doing that I think really helps sell it. Uh, and, and for the most part, there's really nothing about Minas Tirith that doesn't feel real. In fact, those gates, the two that they created, are just incredible. And, and yeah, the, the thought process they put into them and, and all of this was just wonderful. And I, I think it's really cool that the centerpiece really for the movie is this incredible work of man but one that's really come into kind of ruin mm-hmm. because Denethor, who we finally get to meet here, has been poisoned by the plantier and doesn't really believe that man has a chance. And so he's just kind of sitting there waiting to die. Yeah. And I love John Noble. I know we got to see a glimpse of him in the two towers, the extended version that we watched, because we see him in a brief flashback, but we really get to see John Noble acting here, and it's just so delicious. So delicious. He's just so... I don't... He he just clearly has given up, and he's so torn by the death of Boromir, and he's so horrible to poor Faramir, and... I love the scene when he has Pippin sing to him and he's just chowing down on lunch. Great work on that sound department, by the way. I don't think tomatoes really sound like that when you bite into them, but... I like to think they do now, though. They might, I don't know, but it still works really well and just like all the juice dripping down his face. He's just completely divorced from reality. And it's wonderful. Well, and it's interesting, too. I mean, when you kind of think about this, you know, he's been sold a story, a narrative by Sauron that there's no choice, that I'm coming, I'm the, I'm going to take over, you've got nothing left. And, and so he's bought that hook, line, and sinker. Yeah. But the sick part about it is, like you said, he treats his only son left so badly that he throws him out to the wolves. <laughs> you know, Literally, the, yeah. The, the Nazgul and... And the rest of, of the orcs there at Osgiliath. And it's just, it's so sad and sick uh, what he does to him. And I have to say, Denethor does such a great job playing that part. Uh, John Noble is, ah, uh, he's deliciously evil. He's wonderful. You know, uh, he eats up every single scene that he's in. And I think he was perfectly cast. Yeah. What bothers me is I don't like the way that Faramir is played in the film. I feel like he's too wussy. Yeah. Uh, whereas in the book, he's very much, he respects his father, but he also knows who he is and is completely okay with the fact that he has his own thoughts, you know, that he doesn't think like his father does, um, you know. And you can tell that there is, in the book, some father-son strain there, obviously, but it doesn't, deter Faramir from being somebody who doesn't come off so like, oh, just love me, father. He's, like, he's such a sad panda the whole time. And I love David Wynnum, but yeah, he's, he's such a sad little bear all the time. It, I, I'm right there with you, Matthew. 
you kind of just want him to like grow a pair. Yeah, and I hate you to say that, but like, dude, yeah, like, come me on. too. Yeah, you're awesome. So your daddy doesn't love you. It's you know, like he's, uh, it, he's also terrible. So you know, he is terrible. Yes. Uh, so I know I'm right there with Don't you. Let just, it get to you. Well, and that's the thing is that in the book it doesn't get to him. I mean, he does tell his father when he sends him off to 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 go back out there. He says in the book, you know. Uh, if I should return, think better of me, father. Mm-hmm. So there is that tension between them. And it's the same but it's, line. It's just the way that Faramir has been played in the book and the way that he's written. Yeah. It's so much different than when he's done in, in the movie. And it's frustrating because, again, as we talked about last time, Faramir is a picture of the nobility of, of men that we see like in Aragorn. And 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 Eomer, as we'll see, who takes over Rohan, and so all the people who are going to be reigning in Middle Earth with Aragorn as men take over the world, it's starting off on a good foot. Yeah. And and so Faramir, though, here in the film, just kind of seems like a little wishy-washy, you know, like love me, you know. Uh, it's like he's Meredith Grey, pick me, <laughs> choose me, love me. Uh, who knew I was going to bring Grey's Anatomy into this? <laughs> well, um, I think we talked about this last time, too. The way that him and uh, Eowyn getting together is portrayed at the end of this movie feels very much like a consolation for both of them. But when you read it in the books, it does not feel that way at all. It feels like no. it's supposed to happen. It feels right for for everyone, for ev- for all the right reasons. Because, and, and we can jump a little bit to that, since we're talking about it, with the Houses of Healing in the movie, you know, we actually get to see it in the movie, we get to see them kind of have their uh, little thing together, but in the book, you're right, it's it's so much stronger because there is this coldness in her because of the fact of, of how she's grown up, the fact that she's always wanted to be a warrior, be someone of renown that she is not at battle with the rest of the the people as they march on the Black Gate. It, she's kind of become a, and, and they even describe, Tolkien even describes it as her being kind of a frost queen. Yeah. And it's through her time in the Houses of Healing and her experience with the Witch King in that battle and with her conversations with Faramir, it leads to her melting. And being able to see that what she wants is to be somebody who's known as a person of life that brings life to the world, not just be a warrior. Uh, she she wants to protect the beauty of the world. And uh, and I, I thought that was a really cool thing because it's, um you know, it's great to have women badass characters, but there's strength in femininity, which femininity usually in in especially in myth is about bringing life yeah and she becomes that character in this story who brings that whole sense of renewal and life again uh, and i thought that was really cool in the book it's just not really in the it's movie, not really there yeah it's kind of like hey you're cool you're kind of cute cool. i guess yeah i mean You've got long hair. Aragorn had long hair. Uh, We're both here. You're a man. He was a man. Uh, you both have swords. So, yeah. I guess this will work. Uh, yeah. It's a little disappointing. <laughs> but her battle 
with the Witch King is beyond brilliant. It's great. It's just great. She's just awesome. I love how she just takes it upon herself and rides into battle with Mary and does awesome things. It's a great story. Well, and it was a wonderful thing, too, because of the way in which both her and Mary aren't supposed to be there. But it's said in lore that no man can kill the Witch King. So it takes a hobbit and a woman to do a man's job. And I love that, you know, that, that it's it's them who aren't even supposed to be there, but mm-hmm. they ride to battle for their friends. And they are the ones that change the course of the battle, too. Yeah. Which is really phenomenal. And I just love the way that they support one another. And you can really tell that they, in a short period of time, have really become friends with one another and really love and trust one another. And they do such a great job of developing that just with, you know, they don't get to spend a ton of time together on screen before they go to battle. It's just done with great dialogue and some really short, phenomenal little scenes. It's really well done. Yeah, I like the part uh, when they're at Dunhow and she puts him in the armor that they've given him, you know, and Mm -hmm. he's waving around the sword and she's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And he's (laughs) like, it's it's not even sharp. Like, I don't, I don't think I could cut butter with this. And she, you know, she sends him off to the smithy and then she has her back and forth with her brother. Uh, but no, it's, it's, it is really cool. And, and that their desire is to do what they can to protect this world, just like everybody else around yeah. them and that they won't shrink the responsibility. She's not going to hide behind the fact of being a woman. He's not going to hide behind the fact of being a hobbit. Yeah. And I think that's really cool, you know, that that idea, like, we don't just make excuses or why we shouldn't have to do stuff because, oh, well, I'm, well, I'm this, you know, that's not those characters. I think it's also a great example of how society often tells us what we should and shouldn't do, regardless of if we actually want to do it or not. And so it's wonderful to see two people not be held back by what they're expected to be and how they're expected to behave and to mm-hmm. do the thing that they desire to the most for the love of their friends and family and to do the right thing. Nope. No, I completely and, and utterly agree. I think it's it's a really, again, I, I, Tolkien is such a great storyteller and I think this is one of the places where those things do come across on screen really well. Yeah. Now, there is something that frustrates me about this whole battle at Minas Tirith is that the book the Pelennor fields that they're fighting in that whole field has a wall around it hmm. and so most of the battle takes place outside that wall as the armies of Mordor try to breach that wall mm-hmm. and then they get to the gate use Grand to knock down the door and Gandalf meets the Witch King at the castle gate, because or Minas gate, because no enemy has actually ever entered Minas Tirith. And so Gandalf basically says, none shall pass. Mm. And the Witch King, you know, has the whole saying of, you know, this is my time. Don't you know death when you see it, old man? And that's the moment in the book that Rohan's call comes and he flies away. 
so nobody enters the city that's not supposed to. Of course, in the movie, that's completely different, and they move uh, that confrontation to another spot. And it always frustrated me because it was such an important scene to me for Gandalf. It let you know how powerful Gandalf is, but that in some ways he's also overmatched, Mm. and the felicitous event, the, as Tolkien would say, the U catastrophe, uh, the joyful turn from destruction to joy of Rohan showing up and right at the right moment. And I, I just, I miss that that's not in the movie. I wish that they had done it that way because I think it's more powerful. But they simplified a lot of things and, and part of that was having the battle take place on an assault on the actual Minas Tirith instead of the outer wall. And that scene that you're talking about happens so quickly. And that's actually a part that I don't really remember. So now I have something to look forward to when I get there in the book. It doesn't stand out as a really powerful scene except for the fact that his staff gets broken. But that happens and is over so quick and it doesn't really seem to hinder him at all not having his staff. So it doesn't really carry the weight that that right. scene seems to carry in the book. So mm-hmm. I can't wait to get there now. No, I think you're exactly right. You know, it, lastly here, it's a, I love that how the, the different hobbits, they have ways in influencing wherever they are. And I love Pippin's being that he's the one who will save Faramir from his demented, ridiculous father, who's like, yeah, heathen time. Let's burn like the kings of old. You know, give me more oil. Uh, that is not the oil bath that you want no. to be watching. I'm uh-uh. Just saying. That's not the that's not the oil bath uh, us yogis take. <laughs> not fun. Yeah, so go ahead, Matthew. Well, it, it's... Yeah. It's so beautiful the way Tolkien structures the story so that the most unlikely of persons, the hobbits, influence the course of history for Middle-earth. You know, as we said earlier, Mary takes out uh, the Witch King with Eowyn. Uh, You know, Frodo and Sam are so obviously pivotal to ending everything when it comes to Sauron and Pippin is pivotal in making sure that the last steward of Gondor isn't killed. Yeah. And and a man that you are we are going to want to have live. And and so each hobbit has found a way to have an influence and I, I just think that's so it's just such a great story especially in our day and age where you know people they want to make up reasons why they sh- they 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 should not have to do things or they should get special treatment for things and instead i i think you know the the beauty of this story is it doesn't matter how small you are or what your handicap is uh because we all have a handicap in life some are just a little bit more obvious than others but we all have things that that we struggle with or or frustrations or are just hardships in our life and I just love the way each one of these hobbits rises above. Yeah. Um, and it's pretty an incredible story. And I love the way each one of them is going through their own individual 
story, their own individual growth. Um, and I think in this movie, it's my favorite because we get to see that the most. We get to see Mary and Pippin, who up to this point have been kind of like an amalgus single unit together, drift apart and really come into their own, even though they're actually going through really similar they're going through a really similar kind of thing just in different places. And I think uh, Peter Jackson does a great job of showing us their similar trials by cutting back and forth between the two of them. And I think in this movie, it really becomes clear to me why the different actors were cast to play the different hobbits. Whereas last time when we were talking, you know, through the magic of editing and us knowing our, our content, Matthew made me sound not like a complete idiot, but I was confusing Mary and Pippin when we were talking about um, the last March of the Ents in the last episode. And it's because before this movie, I felt like the Hobbits were miscast, that they should have played the other characters, that Dominic Monaghan should have played Pippin. But here, I think he's really perfect as Mary. And I think it's because we get to see them separated and being the hobbits on their own as opposed to being a combined unit. No, I I completely agree with you. Um, I think one of the things that was really smart for them is that even though Billy Boyd is older than Dominic Moynihan, the way that he plays the character feels like he's the older one. Yeah, often, yeah. Yes, and and uh, and that's important because in the story... Pippin is the one that seems to be... He's a little bit brasher. He's usually the one yeah. that's kind of getting into trouble. Yes, yeah. yes. And I, I love that. I love the way that they play that off. You know, I think it's beautiful at the beginning at Edoras where Mary gives Pippin his last bit of long bottom leaf and he's like, you smoke too much, Pip. You know, he's taking care of his friend, but he's also fearful for his friend because he's not sure if he's going to live yeah. since he's heading off in the direction of danger. And he knows that he can't be there for him at this moment. Like, it's he, it's not a possibility. So it really is. It's a really interesting thing. But it also, it's, it's another interesting area in which these young hobbits really become men. You know, like each yeah. one finds their manhood in, 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 in various ways. And I think they become the best hobbits they can be. That's yes, what they find. Yes. The, like, yeah, it's like they're in the Hobbit army. Be <laughs> yeah. the best that they can be. So uh, I completely agree with you. No, that, and it's a, it makes for a wonderful story because they are some of the characters I think people really attach themselves to as they're watching the films. Because they're the ones that seem to be the most relatable, yeah. you know? And uh, I, I think that's a really smart thing that Tolkien does in the story. And Peter Jackson, I think, does a pretty good job of helping ground the movie through the experience of these hobbits. And, and that makes it really fun because, honestly, I'm never going to be an Aragorn in my life. But I might be able to pull off a Pippin or a Merry. Yeah. Well, and again, they have one of those phenomenal friendships that we get to see over the course of the movie and, and reading the books that it's like, I totally want to be involved in a friendship like that. They Their closeness is just so touching and it just seems like a fantastic relationship and it's always a joy to read about. They're always getting into trouble and helping each other out and they're funny just like Legolas and Gimli are. So 
I love I it's again it's like my other favorite relationship in in the films and in the books but getting them apart and letting them grow as individuals I think is super important and I love getting to see it well and in a world where I have to say everything is over sexualized even friendships yes it's it's wonderful to see a celebration of the beauty and the joy of friendship as it's meant to be between all different types of people and especially two men. It's it's okay for dudes to be friends. Yes. And really close it really friends. Is. And it, yeah, and it's an it's an important thing and and speaking as someone who has some wonderful male friendships in his life that I could not live without. And the importance of those on my life and who I've become, it's it's nice to see that played out. And I think Tolkien does a really good job with that. And it's one of the beauties of his stories because his male characters can be close to one another. And vulnerable without, with one another. And vulnerable, exactly. And go through life together like that and support each other. And I just, I think it's it's really... It's just really well done. Yeah, so I completely agree. Well, we have a whole other part of the film that most people would have expected if they'd read the books to be in the two towers. But chronology wise, Peter Jackson realized that the timeline actually had this happen really during Return of the King. So we get Shelob's lair here. And of course, Mordor. And I just I wanted to ask you because, you know, Shelob's Lair in the book and, of course, in the movie is it's a pivotal scene because it kind of changes everything uh, about what's going to happen to these characters. And it's been building up with Gollum as he's been planning his his escape from the hobbits and the way to get the ring back. And, of course, a big, huge spider. Yeah. So, um... For people who don't know this about me, I have a big problem with spiders. That's the thing that I'm terrified of. And reading the books, it was terrifying. And I think I read through it as fast as I could. And then Shelob's Lair happens right at the end of The Two Towers. And it ends with a cliffhanger. And I had to pick up the next book right away and read it. A, to get the spiders out of my mind. And B, to see what happened next. Seeing it on screen... I have actually not been able to keep my eyes on the screen for any length of time. Any time that I've seen this movie, and I've seen this movie many, many times. In the movie theater, I listened to it. I had my head down the whole time because that is some scary crap for me. It's really, really bad. My my spider phobia is really bad. So um, it scares the crap out of me. It scares the crap out of me. <laughs> so it does its job that. really really well <laughs> i love that because you know peter jackson is apparently also very afraid of spiders i don't know how so he like knew. edited directed that because i would not have been able I, to <laughs> yeah they they said that they knew you know digitally that they were on the right track if they were freaking him out yeah. and that is that crap freaks me out i think it's it's a really well done scene you know uh i think it looks really good still uh, the it's really interesting you know they created the webs with this kind of like the strange urethane that they would like drip into water and then pour you know like pour it around so they could make the webs and then it was really sticky 
you know, so it really was sticking to the hobbits as they were walking through. And so just it's ah, oh, uber creepy. So and then, gross. you know, there's like dead birds and like skulls oh, hanging I in know, there and everything. It's just so creepy. I, I've like oh, seen the spider awful. webs. It's about all I can handle. As soon as any of them start moving, I'm like, no. Oh, it's so bad, guys. It It's it's awful, <laughs> awful. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's it's one of those scenes, too, that it, it's so pivotal for moving the story forward you know uh obviously it's changed a little bit in the movie because Smeagol has created this rift between Sam and Frodo and that doesn't happen in the book uh you know and so Frodo goes in alone and he faces off against uh Shelob and then Smeagol and uh, gets captured uh, by the orcs and but I, I love the the way this happens because it gives us that interesting little bit where Sam actually becomes a ring bearer mm-hmm. and I think it's really astonishing because you see the strength of Sam again it's hard for him but he gives the ring back he does and there are very few times in the story where anybody takes the ring and gives it back to somebody willingly. Well, and that's something Gandalf talked about as it almost never happens. I, I think he says that the only time the ring has been willingly given is when Bilbo gave it to Frodo. So it seems to be something that has only happened with hobbits. And and we do see it with Sam, and we see how hard it is for him, but he still does it anyway. And gosh, isn't Sam just the best? He really is. I think everybody needs a Sam in everybody their life. Everybody does. Um, and, you know, I mean, uh, the, the straight from the book, you know, but if I can't carry it, I'll carry you, you know, and bearing the load of Frodo up to the, the cliff there and... Ah, it's just such a it's it's a wonderful. It makes me cry every time I watch yeah. it. Yeah, every time. And and Mordor, they do such a good job with everything, blending what they do with CGI and where they shot, and the creation of the sets and everything that they make, and uh, and then when they get into Mount Doom, you know, I think it's really fantastic. I think the uh, lava work looks really good. Uh, it, it reminds me very much of the lava work they did in episode three that was so mm, good. Yeah. And part of that is because they shot a real volcano and used that. Uh, and then I just, the whole thing works so well. And the only thing I'll say about the end that isn't my favorite, I wish that they had kept Tolkien's original story point which is that he bites off Frodo's finger, he has the ring, he's so enamored with it that he steps too far and falls off so that it's his own doom. Because I, I don't like that Frodo basically causes the death. Well, I, I think you could kind of argue that they're both fighting over it and they both, you know, it, it's kind of like the... It's kind of like the Disney bad bad guy always falling to his death, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, you could certainly argue that Frodo didn't push him. They were fighting and therefore they both fell. But I agree with you because it may, it, it puts Frodo too far into the action still. Well, it, and it's it really is this wonderful thing of uh, that Gollum had his place, but it's also... It has a lot to say with how 
we as people get so enamored with the things that we really want that we are blind to what's happening mm-hmm. around us and it the whole world gives way you know yeah. like uh and I, I thought that that's a uh you know tolkien is famous for writing that not all that glitters is gold and uh, you know that's what he finds out it's, it's not really all that it was cracked up to be <laughs> Uh, but uh, it cracks Mount Doom, and the story ends with uh, them getting saved by the eagles. And then, of course, uh, what so many people will complain about it with this movie, that they feel like it has too many endings. But if you've read the book, you understand. There's more. That book has, there's more that they didn't do. I mean, because they literally go on a Middle-Earth victory tour. Yeah, It's like. Let's visit all the places we were before. We'll go to Rohan. We'll go to Rivendell. You know, we'll go to Bree. I mean, they go everywhere. There's like a third of the number of endings in this movie as there are in the book. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I mean, there's a whole scourging of the Shire that's not in the book. I mean, there's just so much that happens at the end of this book that's not there. And it it works great for the book. I think that they, they simplify it enough for the movie to get the point across. But one of the things that sticks out to me they're in the movie a little bit but one is that Sauron has one eye and just the impact of war in general on people and I've always liked the idea that Tolkien uses about having one eye and how that kind of makes you blind to whatever you're not focusing on Mm. and therefore you're short-sighted and so are your plans and that Sauron in the end lacks dimension because he he can't see uh, the forest for the trees, you know, <laughs> because he can only see with one eye. And I think that the way in which he portrays evil of the, the short-sightedness of it, the selfishness of it, the single vision yeah. that it gets, I think is, is really actually has so much dimension to it, uh, if it as its portrayal of evil. It's really wonderful, and I think it comes across in the movie because they even talk about, you know, Aragorn even says, we'll draw Sauron's gaze to us. That's why they go to the Black Gate to give Frodo his chance, and and that whole theme plays out very specifically there, and it's pretty wonderful to watch that happen because I, I think it speaks about the idea that the utter selfishness of Sauron leads to his doom, Mount Doom. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree with you. And the way that it's visually represented in this movie is so phenomenal, especially after Frodo and Sam get within the gates of Mordor. There's literally that eye that becomes a spotlight moving mm-hmm. around Mordor. And it's great because when they go to the Black Gates, that eye literally turns its spotlight completely away from Sam and Frodo. And I love in this extended edition, we get some great stuff. Like I love that gatekeeper that is not in the uh, theatrical Yes, the mouth of Sauron. He's so so creepy. And and it's so creepy. It's such an entertaining character. And they bring some humor with that character into this really dark moment, which is kind of weird but it also really really works so yeah like they literally distract the eye of of Sauron and then we get this phenomenal completely heart-wrenching moment when all of the people who are there know that there is no hope of winning there's no hope of survival 
they have bought into the gatekeeper's lie that they found and killed Frodo, they're going to fight anyway. They know that they have no chance and they're still going to do it. And there's that great moment they all shout for Frodo and march into battle and then everything turns out okay in the end. And it's that never giving up that I think is really just one of the best messages of these books and of these movies. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. And I think it works so well in the film. And I'm, I'm glad that they did it. There was a moment in the movie that I would have hated if they had done, which is the troll that Aragorn fights was supposed to be Sauron. They had, they had thought about doing it as him facing off against Sauron. And I'm glad they didn't do that because yeah. it, it negates the whole idea that he is a single-minded, single-visioned person. Because by that point, Sauron's gaze would have been in two different places. Yeah. And he can't he can't do two things at once. He's kind of like well, he's kind of like a Tinkerbell. That's why he has to have uh, so he, many minions. Exactly. He can only do and have one emotion at one time, yeah. you know? He can only focus in one place at one time. So I'm glad they didn't do that. Um and at least uh, I think the last thing and I wish this was stronger. I don't know how you make this stronger if you don't do the scourging of the Shire, which at the end of the story, there's a whole chapter where the hobbits get back to the Shire and they realize that something is amiss uh, in Hobbiton. And it's because in the book, Saruman and Wormtongue have taken over the Shire. And this heavenly hamlet uh, will also receive the scars of war. And it, 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 it creates this whole idea of this impact that war has even on places that we don't think we're going to be affected. Yeah. And in the movie, the only way they do that is for the fact that Frodo doesn't find the peace that he's longing for until he gets on the boat, basically, to go to the Grey Havens. And I think that's impactful, but I miss the full impact of that. Because I think that's an important message that, you know, war is necessary. And I think, you know, obviously Tolkien is saying that the war against Sauron is necessary. But that that's not negate the impact that that has on even places we don't feel like that impact would be felt. Yeah, I think what gets lost by not doing the scourging of the Shire is the fact that war will have impact on the innocent and those who are completely mm -hmm. uninvolved in some way, we might not know what that is, but it does. Because, you know, all those hobbits and hobbiton, they, they literally have nothing to do. They have no idea what's going on in the outside world. And then it comes to them and it really messes with them. Whereas if it's just Frodo who's feeling the impact of war, right? Because Sam and Mary and Pippin pretty much go back to being normal. If it's just Frodo... It, it's it's just that the war has impacted the soldiers as opposed to the innocents, which is one of the worst, which is probably the worst thing about war is all of the innocents who are killed and hurt and damaged by it. No, I, I'm right there with you and I completely agree. And I, I think, you know, that's the thing that um, it is important to remember, you know, war can be necessary and it, it often is if we look throughout history, it, it's been necessary. Yeah. But the impact of it also has to be taken into account. It's never to be taken lightly. Exactly. And and I think that's what's so important. And I think that Tolkien, 
does a great job of showing that. You know, obviously been a survivor of war himself, uh, World War One. Many of his friends, most of his friends that he had as a young boy, uh, as a teenager that he went to war with, they died. You know, he experienced exactly what that this is like. And so I think it's phenomenal that Tolkien tackles that subject and, and makes us have to think about it. And so um, I guess in the end, you know, wrapping up here with uh, the, the Return of the King, we're finishing out the uh, Lord of the Rings series. Uh, what does this one rate for you? Mm, I think this one, there are some parts in it that are some of my favorite parts in the whole series. Uh, I think it's my second favorite out of the the three extended editions. The, fir- the first one has got to be my favorite hands down, but I think this is a good second favorite for me. Yeah, no, I'm right there with you. I think this is probably four out of five stars. Yeah, I'd agree you know, with you there. Uh, Yeah, four out of five tankards of ale back at the Green <laughs> Dragon once we're back. So, four four uh, pipes but of it long is, bottom leaf. Yes, <laughs> there you go. Uh, but it's very good. I, I enjoy it a lot. And like you said, there are some scenes in here that are some of my favorite. Uh, I, I love. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, well, I'm so glad that, uh, you know, we've gotten here to the end of the series. It's so much fun to have been talking about this. We have a f- couple more episodes left this year, and I'm very excited. We're going to be doing Iron Man 3 next week, picking up some Marvel as we kind of continue that as we look into the new year with some things that are going to happen there. And we'll wrap up the year with the one, the only, Rogue One. Uh, thank you so much to our social producers here on the 602 Club. Ken Tripp, Davis Grayson, Norman Lau. Really appreciate you gentlemen for choosing the 602 Club and being such amazing patrons of Trek FM here on through Patreon. Uh, your support of this show specifically has meant the world to me. We are a listener-supported network here on Trek FM, so go over to patreon.com slash trekfm and see how you can become part of the team. Help us make sure that 2016 is a fantastic year We definitely need your help, and every little bit does actually help. You have no idea. So go over to patreon.com slash trek.fm. Check out all the goals we're trying to reach and the ways in which you'll be rewarded for your support. Uh, Again, that's patreon.com slash trek.fm. Well, Megan, it's it's fantastic to have been here and the Green Dragon with you. Uh, I'm so excited at any time that you you come and, and join us over here at the 602 Club. Let everybody know where they can find you online. And, of course, uh, about the podcast that you do at Educating Geeks. So, yeah, if you want to find me personally, um, I'm on Twitter at Meg Calcote. That's M-E-G-C-A-L-C-O-T-E. And you can find me on Instagram under that username as well. But if you want to find my podcast, we're called Educating Geeks. We're at Educating Geeks on Twitter. And you can just search Educating Geeks on Facebook and Instagram to find us. And we do something pretty similar to what the 602 Club does, where we like to find one of our favorite topics in geekdom. And if we know someone who's never experienced that thing, we want to bring them into the fold. We don't revoke your geek card if you haven't read Lord of the Rings. We say, let's read Lord of the Rings together and then talk about it. And we get this really great newbie perspective on a lot of the stuff that we talk about. It's a lot of fun and it's a great way to experience one of your favorite things through new eyes. Um, So you can find us at educatinggeeks.com or just search Educating Geeks on social media. Definitely check it out. It's totally worth it. It's a lot of fun. And uh, I love what you guys do because like you said, it's kind of fun sometimes to hear 
a new perspective. You know, we get mired in our fandoms and we kind of forget what it's like to, to experience something for the first time. You know, I feel like if I could go back and experience Harry Potter or again, the books for the first time, I totally would. So, I know, right? Uh, it's so magical. <laughs> oh, that'd be awesome. Well, you can find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. I'm also here on the network doing The Orb with Chris Jones talking about Deep Space Nine. On Literary Checks with Dan and Bruce talking about the books and the comics of Star Trek and, of course, getting to interview the authors, which is a lot of fun. The 602 Club, of course, and as well, you can find Star Wars The 602 Club collection there on iTunes, which is all the Star Wars episodes in one place. Both of them, both of the feeds are on iTunes. It's a lot of fun. And if you love Star Wars, can't get enough, check out Aggressive Negotiations that I do with John Mills over there on the nerdparty.com, or you can also find Aggressive Negotiations on iTunes. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now, you hear? Thank you.